netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by FX Guide's Insider Members. You see, our ability to produce great content is built on the generous contribution of FX Guide members through the Insider Program. If you want to learn more or become a member, go to fxguide.com slash fxinsider and keep an eye out for special exclusive content. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. This is the podcast where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We produce several audio and video podcasts, so please check them all out at fxguide.com. Hey, recently we had a podcast about digital costume design, and I'd call this one a companion piece to that. Rob Ruppel is an art director at Naughty Dog and today's guests on the FX podcast. Naughty Dog is the computer games company behind titles like The Last of Us and Uncharted. So this conversation is about the art direction process in games and how he's learned from working on films. I think you'll really enjoy a conversation like this, a more general craft conversation, and a look at how history and experiences influence work. Next week, we have a discussion with Gareth Edwards, the director of Godzilla. We've followed Gareth and stories on FX Guide about his amazing work on a BBC production of Attila the Hun, and he taught a class for us at fxphd.com, our online sister training site, where we are a few weeks into a new term, still plenty of time to catch up. Anyway, there's a lot more about that next week. Let's cross now to Mike Seymour speaking with Rob Ruppel. At GDC this year, uh, there was a terrific talk given about art direction and production design. In particular, art direction and production design at GDC, you'd think that's going to be just focused on, you know, what is it like to uh, look at it in games terms? What's it like in terms of current development? What's the latest hit title? How's that all kind of working? And instead of that, what we got at GDC was an amazing talk um, uh, that was art direction is not just Googling images. And this talk was particularly interesting to me because... um, Rob, who you'll hear in a second, who I uh, spoke to after his GDC talk, looked very much at this from the point of view of um, films, a uh, history leading into stuff like the Uncharted uh, games that he's worked on, Tron Uprising and other things. Because before he was working at uh, Naughty Dog, he was working uh, on films like Meet the Robinsons, Brother Bear, um, Empress New Groove, Mulan and more. But he didn't just refer to these great animated titles. He also sort of delved into the world of literature, the world of uh, classic films, films from uh, bygone eras, uh, everything from Jaws to Star Wars. Uh, To give you an example, and it's one that we don't discuss in the interview, um, he started out by just pointing that if you want to sort of uh, really have uh, symbolism, it's one of four points he touched on, um, then, you know, you should maybe combine things. And the one he gave as an example was you take a Nazi kind of helmet, you take a skull, you put those two together and you basically get Vader's head slash helmet uh, for Star Wars. And it's a very strong image. It's in black. It says baddie. It says death. It says uh, military. It says all the things you want to say and it communicates to it in a very short amount of time. This is one 
of the uh, examples, the many examples that he gave. And I'm going to go through those examples with him in a second. But symbolism was one of four things. Allegory was another, the idea of an extended metaphor. Uh, and we'll start by discussing that in one moment when we look at the film The Graduate. Uh, but also alliteration, the repetition of shapes, the, the meaning of significance by having those repetition of shapes. Again, we'll, we discuss that in terms of the film The Matrix. And then iconography. And, and when we got to iconography in the talk, I was expecting him to discuss just, you know, clearly symbols and, and stuff like this. But actually, it felt to me like his uh, understanding of iconography was moving far more into readability, staging, uh, visual readability that would almost translate to uh, cinematography. And so I just found this to be a terrific uh, chat by someone who clearly has spanned uh, two big uh, major areas of the visual arts. And so I reached out to Rob and said, would we be able to have a chat? And one of the reasons we also wanted to do this is that a little while ago here at FX Guide on the FX podcast, we discussed the role of, uh, I guess, cloth sim, not being cloth sim, but really being costume design. And I felt that was a really healthy discussion because I feel that our brothers that do and sisters that do cloth simulation work are given short change by the fact that they're not really uh, given the credit for the kind of work they do in the amazing world of costume design. And in exactly the same way, I feel like art direction, while very central to many of the arts, doesn't certainly at FX Guy maybe get as much attention as it deserves. And so by speaking to someone who is a professional art director, production designer at a very senior level, I hoped to address that, but also get some insight into the broad range of stuff. So this isn't focused on an individual game, uh, such as the Uncharted series or anything else like this. We will touch on a whole bunch of things. It really tries to address those major issues of production design, uh, as outlined by Rob in his GDC talk, which was symbolism, allegory, alliteration and iconography. So I'm going to refer very heavily to that uh, GDC talk. It actually was not a particularly long talk. I think it was only um, about 15 or 20 minutes, uh, which was you know, quite short, but it was just such a cracker of a talk that uh, hopefully he'll be able to come back and do it. Unfortunately, that talk isn't available on the net unless you are a member of GDC. And um, as a member, you can actually, of course, uh, reference that in the, um, in the library, in the vault. Of GDC, so we can't provide that to you. But I think we hit on most of the major points in this interview. And I want to thank Rob and the uh, team at Naughty Dog for uh, doing this. It's obviously great when we can have these discussions that aren't focused on individual uh, production so much that gives us that extra perspective on the industry as a whole. So here now is my chat uh, with Rob. And I started by um, asking him if he got a good reaction to this GDC uh, 2014 talk, Art Direction. It's not just Googling images. Yeah, most people said, "Can can it go longer next time?" And oh I, yeah, I would agree I with that. Expanded to an hour, but I I was really wanting to do uh, sort of a short version and see if it went over well, and it and it did. So yes, definitely next time, uh, much more. Because so, God, there's you know, there's so many examples. So why you didn't really, um, I guess. Uh, reprimand the audience the certainly inherent with this sort of concept of not just googling images but going further does kind of imply that there are parts of the industry uh, both gaming and film that perhaps don't give art direction the credit that it's due is that fair to say i don't know about that i think i think film and theater and writing accept more um that there is an importance to underline meaning behind the choices that you're making because they've been around as art forms. They've been around just a little bit longer. Um, you know, film being still fairly new, just over a hundred years old, but uh, film kind of came from a theater background and theater is such a limited medium in that 
there's a stage. Well, you're not just going to recreate reality on a stage from, you know, 40 feet away. That's boring for the audience. So they had to come up with ways to make it interesting. I guess one of the reasons that I say that is from time to time, someone will make a comment to me in, in passing oh, that was really interesting. I wonder if they did that on purpose. And I'm almost, you know, choke. And it's like, well, of course they did it on purpose, you know. Um. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, no. There, um, there's, a, there's, a great, um, there's a great idea in that if you do not assign meaning to something, the audience will. So you better have an idea behind it. If you're, if you're not, the audience is going to go, oh, well, this must mean this, and this must mean that. It's like, if you haven't thought about it, they're going to look for it anyway. It's just in our nature. So, so just for those that weren't able to attend GDC, what were the four um, sort of key points that, uh, in, in summary, that you hit on for the talk, and then we'll explore them a little more? I was just trying to show examples from... Um, films and games that have used sort of a broader, and I was trying to pick ones that people would not even think of as having like um, context or meaning behind them. And one of the most interesting ones was The Graduate. I read this fantastic interview with Richard Silber, and in the interview he says, oh, you know, what is, this is like some urban drama. It's very dry. What am I going to do to make this interesting for myself, my crew, and the audience who's paying attention? And he thought, okay, Everyone thinks they're individuals in this cookie-cutter community, but they're not. They're really just little mirror images of each other. And so he took the two households, the Braddocks and the Robinsons, and mirrored them. It's, it's almost the exact same layout and the same materials, but if one banister was black, the other banister was white. If the candles in the living room were black, the others were white. And he just sort of um, went back and forth between the two households, sort of spinning off of the fact that you know they think – they're these like oh we've made a we've made an individual statement and they're just they're so they're so close to each other and I think he was also making a statement about the black and whiteness of um, the times too because the people dressed in black and white the fish in the tank were black and white there was so much black and white in that film that when Mrs Robinson shows up in her predator animal prints you really notice her I liked your point about the fish tank which is that you know you don't get black and white fish in the fish tank by accident. Someone makes a conscious right. decision. But that's exactly what we're talking about before, I think, where someone kind of goes, oh, I wonder if they meant that. And it's like, well, yeah. Yeah, definitely. This happens uh, for a reason. And and um, I think one of the things that uh, that is really important is understanding that those choices don't have to necessarily um, wave in, in the audience's faces as like a giant flashing neon sign, that they are um, contextual, but they also have this meaning that we don't have to literally sort of sit up and, and notice at the moment that we see it. Oh, not at all. And I didn't even notice the stuff in The um, uh, the Graduate until I read his interview and then went back and watched it and went, oh my gosh, look at that. He's, he's so on the money with this. Yeah, it doesn't take away from the experience at all. But what it does, though, is set up when films don't do that or games don't do that, you feel a little bit sort of like, huh, why does this not look as good? Why does this not feel as good? This one doesn't feel as professional. Hmm, I wonder why. You know, you can't quite put your finger on it, but you know, you know something's missing. Now, another example that I think was more obvious than I certainly noticed, and I, and I don't think was um, very hidden, but worked very well, was the repetition of shapes, the alliteration of uh, Monsters, Inks in terms of the shapes, the way that that was reflected in the, the very nature and the fabric of the sets that they were inhabiting. Do you want to discuss that? Sure. They had this um, this great motif of most of the things in the monster world was made up of a monster face. If you look at the television or the speakers 
or the light switches or the lamps or anything, the buildings themselves, almost anything and everything, the cars were made up of monster faces with, you know, jagged, mouthy, fangy teeth uh, and, you know, sort of squinting, um, evil looking eyes. And it was, it was great and it was subtle and it, all it did uh, was help reinforce that this is the monster world. And then we go to the human world, it's just sort of exaggerated regular shapes. You're obviously working now with Naughty Dog doing premiere uh, titles, but you have a history with uh, animation. Is it easier in animation and games to be able to allow that to come through as opposed to live action, you think? Or is it just a matter of making sure that art department gets the time to plan and, and produce stuff accordingly? I don't know if it's easier, but by nature of the medium, whether it's a feature animated film or game, every single thing in that setting needs to be designed um you know when you're when you're shooting live action you can just find an interesting location granted it still needs to represent what you want it to but when you everything everything in a game or uh, an animated feature has to be built and designed by somebody you know you don't just go all right where's our stock tables you know you have to go what does this table look like so it's more of an opportunity that every single color choice every single shape choice can be conscious, can be you know design-oriented rather than just random. I was listening to your talk, and I was thinking, um, you know, one sort of tends to have these discussions more about character. And I remember having a discussion with someone who was a character animator, and they were saying, like, you, the importance of backstory is that I can then know how a, a, a minor sort of embellishment or, or thing will happen with a character based on their perceived personality, their perceived backstory. Like, it informs the little choices. And to a certain extent, totally. as you were talking, I was thinking, well, that's exactly the same in that direction, isn't it? If I have those broad brushstrokes, then now I can know which way to go with the smaller details without having to have a director or, a, or somebody just you know, individually sort of fine-tune every single thing. Well, yeah, it does, it does help everybody just sort of understand um, what the goal is. You know, what are we doing and why are we doing it? If I can get back to live action, you gave some examples uh, like Raise the Red Lantern and also The Matrix. And I think what was interesting about these examples, in The Matrix, you were talking about the grid world, and I might get you to talk about that in a second. In Red Lantern, it was a bit more almost in terms of uh, blocking and cinematography. And I was wondering if we could just discuss that idea, firstly, that idea of The Matrix and the organic and the grid, but then how this actually extends way past art direction to a kind of full connection to, to framing, blocking and cinematography. Sure. Um, in Raise the Red Lantern, it was, it was a fascinating idea that the director came up with. He wanted us, the audience, and it always goes back to connecting with your audience. He wanted us, the audience, to understand what these women were going through. So he had four or five concubines, and none of them knew the main character very well. So he made the choice of the audience not ever seeing the guy up close. He was always in a long shot. He always was distant, just as emotionally he was distant from them. So when you were done watching the film, you go, okay, I know there was this sort of head of the household character guy, but I couldn't tell you much about him. I didn't know exactly what he looked like, and I didn't feel like I really knew him. Well, it was precisely the filmmaker's point. So there's devices that we can always use to get the audience to feel something, whether it's disconnect or connect, or but we always want to connect with the audience, even if we're forcing them to not understand you know, the emotional availability of a certain character. They are connecting with that idea. And then the other one on the Matrix was in the, um, the grid world, the computer designed and the Wachowskis and um, 
Owen Peterson had this great idea. What, what would a computer build? Well, you know, a computer would build something very organized and very um, uh, grid-like and very machine-like. And so what, where, whenever they could, they tried to make the world that was being generated by the matrix, the computers, to be very grid-like, very ordered, very regimented. And then when you get into the, quote, real world, everything's organic and sloppy and pieced together and much more visually confusing, not as, not as neat and packaged as a machine would make. And just that kind of, that kind of thinking really helps, I think, um, push, push the visual storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until you showed some examples. For example, the the way the pages on his table early in the film, when he's um, still uh, in the uh, in the Matrix, uh, that everything's arranged in a grid pattern, just on his desk in the cubicle, and it was oh just well, yeah, real and attention the, to detail. the fact that yeah, the, well, the fact they're in cubicles, the fact <laughs> that everywhere you look, there's a grid on the wall, or there's a grid on the floor, or things are laid out in grids. And um, I love the idea too that the pods stick out. They protrude, um, that they keep the human beings in as batteries. But when you get to Zion, everybody sleeps in a red cylinder that's pushed into the wall, which is almost more womb-like and more safe. It was the same idea, like some sort of red thing, but um, but varying in how it was. Uh, one was sticking out, one was one was inserted, and it was just it was a great little um, callback, a great little echo of you know kind of how they used to exist and how they're existing now and how they're saying, how they're similar, but also how they're different. So let me go on to that idea of the cinematography and, uh, and staging like in, um, and this wasn't in your talk, but in uncharted, there was a lot of horizontal lines and stuff that would sort of indicate where people go. And I think it was a point you picked up on in, in uh, the previous GDC. And there seems to me to be a lot of staging stuff that we're getting into here. Um, and whether it be in game or be in cinematography, it's not a clean line, is it between the two? Between staging and cinematography? Well, yeah, because the way that you art direct uh, so so helps the readability. I mean, it's one of the things you picked up on just in uh, your talk. Now, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you're talking about how clean it is to determine which character is which, even in silhouette, which is really a wardrobing right. casting thing. Um, yeah, I guess. But since everything in a video game is virtual and we don't have departments like that, it, it all comes down to what I call screen real estate. And it's just like, what are we looking at? Why are we looking at? Why is it important? And how can we make it just blatantly clear and easy to read and understandable? I think, I think that is what is so key and what is, what is so important is I really see a lot of almost fetishizing of detail and technology to the point of, well, let me use this as an example. Um, there are some brilliant Instagram photographers and it's not the camera they're using. They're, they're just, they're good visualists, you know? And there's some horrible photographers who, yeah, it's, it's not about the technology. It's about the choices that you make and the staging and the idea behind it. Is there a simple idea behind it? You know, is it clear and readable? Because we see in stereo, we see with two eyes. And most media, by and large, is still, you know, on a flat screen of some kind. So we have to overcome that flatness with devices that allow us to think we're looking at a three-dimensional image. Uh, and the old films and the old cinematographers knew this. They, they completely understood this. They understood the screen was already flat, and they had to do everything they could to overcome that, to get that sense of depth and um, um, perspective into the scene. 
and it's almost invisible because they did such a good job. But you look at you look at a bad film that doesn't have that same level of craftsmanship, and it just it feels cheap and it feels wrong, and you're not really sure why. And a, an A-list film, and I'm talking like 40s and 50s films, an A-list film that you just go, oh wow, this is so pretty, and it's nearly invisible the fact that they've created depth, the illusion of depth. I should say the illusion of depth. Yeah. No, no, this is a really good point. I guess the reason I mentioned the Charlie and Chocolate Factory thing is I loved how you then spun into the discussion of the fact that in Jaws you had three men, all middle-aged, who were easily identifiable to the audience. And uh, I think you used the example that there is the antithesis of a soap opera kind of in, and it was right down to casting and, and looks, just the the uh, clarity of being able to communicate with the audience so that you didn't have to waste time trying to track who was who. Oh, exactly, because when a face is up on the screen for less than a second and there's an action scene going on, you don't want to confuse the audience. And you, yeah, you've got three guys who are basically the same age, basically the same race, and they made great choices with shapes of hat, hair, and eyeglasses and facial hair so that you knew exactly who we were looking at every time there was an action scene of the three of them fighting the shark. And I thought, that is so basic and so simple, but it's something we've kind of forgotten about. I think there was a little bit of a loss of sort of, um, you know, the passing of information somewhere in the, uh, in the seventies to where we are now, the stuff that was kind of just taken for granted in terms of good visual storytelling, that when some of the newer mediums come al- come along, they, they kind of like, you know, in a bad way, sort of reinvented the wheel from the ground up without using, without utilizing all this fantastic 3000 years of art history that, um, by and large, a lot of people have worked out a lot of um, solutions to, just given the fact that all medias are limited in a way. I think you gave the example of the game Journey as being a really good, in terms of readable form, also the use of color, um, uh, very rich and yet simple. Oh, Journey is one of my favorite. It's just, it's so beautiful to look at. It's so simple, and everything out there means something. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's just, it's a moving piece of artwork. And that same kind of thinking can be more complex and photoreal. That same kind of design can be taken further, but there still needs to, um, you almost have to, you can't have everything on the screen all the time. You just can't. You have to figure out what you're going to remove in order for the stuff to stay up there to mean something. You can't have every color. You can't have every shape. It's just chaos. Yeah. You have to go, okay, what, what am I deciding that's important? What am I telling the audience this is important to look at? Um, I guess, you know, in, in games that uh, are expanding in a, in a universe, there is a lot of uh, opportunity for the stuff that we're discussing. It, how big do you think symbolism is in terms of, or rather bigger kind of arcing, 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 it's a terrible word, bigger arches of symbolism in terms of, uh, you know, story development in games? Because... Uh, you, know, you you mentioned Rosebud, um, I think, in your talk mm-hmm. of a classic kind of piece of symbolism. I mean, are we getting to that level in games? I hope so, because it's just going to make the whole experience better and more immersive and more interesting. Because we're so used to that kind of... Um, uh, we're so used to those kind of techniques in good writing, in good fiction, in good movies, in good plays, in good whatever. It's there. So there's no reason why games should not be taking advantage of it. And I honestly think the more we take advantage of it, the, the more we're going to make this media mature and the more 
this media matures, I think it can become the dominant media of our lifetime. Because you gave in your talk great examples of games like Portal and, and we already mentioned Journey and stuff, but you're also referring back to things like Gatsby, as I said, uh, you know, a lot of films from uh, much earlier, a rich history of drawing from theatre and film. Is that is that sort of a, a broad brushstroke, exactly what people should be doing, like going back to learn to bring forward? Yeah, I, would, I think that would be great because I, I think a lot of people don't realise that books like The Great Gatsby have certain... Um, it is uh, almost a, a structural device. In uh, You're talking yeah, about the like, Valley of the Ash and the way that bad right, things right. came the, from there. The symbolism of the Valley of the Ash in that um, that's where Daisy uh, hits the other girl. That's where um, Daisy's husband is having an affair with the other girl. All the horrible things that happen sort of emanate from the evil that's happening in the Valley of the Ash. And the Valley of Ash was the refuse of this society. So it's F. Scott Fitzgerald's, you know, way of commenting on, you know, maybe even preaching about, you know, the your actions have consequences. And, um, yeah, it's, it's entirely symbolic. of, And it, it turns out that it, you know, affects the characters. It, it drives their actions, just like Rosebud the Sled. You know, they use it as a device to tell the story, but it also symbolizes, you know, a time when Charles Foster Kane had his innocence and he didn't have all these problems and he didn't have all this complexity in his life. And near the end of his life, he kind of wishes he just had had that sort of innocence, that lost youth. So it's a fantastic device to tell his story, you know, but it's also a great um, symbol of what he wanted at the end of his life. Yeah, I mean, something like Journey, uh, or for that matter, I think another example you gave was Pan's Labyrinth, which you know has this recurring theme of uh, fallopian tubes. They are very, what I would think of as sort of art-directed pieces. But in your talk, you were very quick to sort of discuss from things that were much more, as you say, like The Graduate, uh, sort of a traditional narrative, uh, an urban narrative, as much as a Pan's Labyrinth, which you know you kind of got your radar up because it is such a rich visual and kind of non-literal world. Yeah, but I wasn't even catching that he made the tree into the fallopian tubes. I mean, I got that it was a design shape, but it was like, oh, it's all fallopian tubes. The tree itself is fallopian tubes. Every image in the book, the way the blood stain of the book made a certain design. And there was other examples, too, that I, I couldn't recall. But I love the fact that uh, Del Toro is so into it and that he's so... Um, um, interested in having a cohesive visual storyline as well as a narrative storyline, that that stuff is very, very important to him. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, in a game development, where just give me that process um, of art direction's role vis-a-vis the story. Like, if one is coming to a game, um, how does how does it sit with the sort of structure, the, with the levels, with just the uh, how, and how much can it be something that's heavily defined up front, how much does it have to evolve through the process just by the nature of the business? I think it needs to be designed up front. Uh, I think it, it's like, it's just like writing. You don't tie all the plot devices and characters together at the end. You need to know where it's all going before you start shooting a film, right? I mean, obviously they don't always do it that way. And <laughs> maybe the stories reflect that. But um, in terms of game design, there's always emotional beats, right? It may not be the exact same narrative and character interaction as a film or a play or a book, but there are still emotional beats that you're trying to emphasize. Every level has an emotional beat to it or an emotional arc to it. It should. 
there should be a designed intent of what you want the, the audience to uh, feel when they're going through this. If it's just literally six hours of someone slapping you in the face, that's not much of an arc. You know, like a good piece of music, like a good piece of writing, like a good piece of art, you want ebb and flow, you want high point, low point, you want contrast, you want action, 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 and then a bit of a breather because we just need it. You know, we need to take in what just happened and we just want variety of pacing too. So a good game designer is going to look at that overriding arc in terms of each level, how the levels fit together, what's the entire emotional arc of the game, and what's the little sub-arcs of each little um, section of it. Yeah, I think music's a great uh, analogy here because you were talking about, say, for example, using uh, the form, shape, and kind of presence of a battleship in a completely different context for a building, but it says to us command center strongly, solidly. Uh, it gives military overtones in the same way that music, you know, if it's like dark and moody and stuff, it's setting a mood. We, we the audience, just take that in. We don't even have to think about it, and it, it sets us up so that we can quickly communicate with what, uh, what we're seeing. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we've got such a history of understanding. I mean, there's a, there's a reason red is used in, in stoplights and stop signs. Red means danger. Red is blood. Green is grass. Green is safe. Green means go. You know, we're so ingrained as a, as a species to not use that kind of stuff is, you know, you're, you're ignoring uh, large, powerful freebies, as it were. And yeah, the same with music. Certain music makes you feel a certain way. It just does. So we have to, and we should be using all those devices to to make the audience feel what we want them to feel. At the end of Maybe your talk, problem. at the end of your talk, you came to this point about immersion, and I think it was really interesting. Um, you did touch on it, but I'd like you to explore it a bit more. It, it, not just throwing in more and more detail to make it more and more intricate to make it more engaging, but in fact. Uh, doing almost the opposite, putting more meaning, but not necessarily more stuff to engage mm -hmm. and therefore immerse. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I have got a good analogy for that. Um, in art school, when you were doing a complex life drawing or painting, and you were doing this for hours and hours and hours, there came a time when the pose was wrapping up. And a good instructor will say, all right, now you've got everything in there. What can you edit? What can you join? What can you remove to make a more powerful statement. Instead of hurrying to, oh, I have to add more hair. Oh, I have to hurry and detail something out. You stop for a minute and you go, okay, what can I remove now? And this will actually make a more powerful statement. It's, it's like if you have an orchestra and everyone's playing the same note in every single instrument, that's not gonna sound very good. So how can you organize certain sounds and timings to make music rather than just chaos. Yeah, that happens to lighting as well, right? Having something in, in silhouette, being able to read something uh, much more rather than just having it kind of fully lit and fully there, the sort of the negative space of the silhouette being a powerful um, staging and, and art direction device. Yeah, I, 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 there's very few, if any, feature films where they just walk on the location, turn on the camera, and film the actor. They shape the light, they cut the light, they diffuse the light, they scrim the background, they, they mold the light. And even good fashion photo shoots, they mold the light to make um, visual readability happen. It, it's not just free, you know, um, it's not just there. And I think, I'm, I'm guessing uh, since um, game engines are now getting close to do 
doing global illumination that a lot of people are assuming that, well, the natural environment is there. We'll just plot the character in and it will it'll look good. It's like there's not, there's not a single film that they haven't done something to, whether it's they're picking the time of the day and the shot and, you know, maybe bouncing some light into the actor's face so you can get exposure so you can read it. Um, there's not a single film that hasn't done something to art direct shape, you know, the lighting. And uh, I think just too many people think, well, it's physical based and uh, so it's going to be real. It's like, okay, yeah, but you know, who does that? Who thinks that looks interesting? Every single feature film has got, you know, uh, an army of cinematographers and gaffers who, whose business and job it is to understand what lights do and how they film or, you know, digital media interprets that and how to direct it and how to shape it. So just in finishing, I'd be remiss if I didn't just ask you, um, you as I said before, you had this very strong uh, presence in animated feature films and now, of course, very strong presence in uh, in leading games titles. Um, in terms of art direction, is there, uh, there's obviously quite a lot of similarity. We've discussed that. Is there areas that are different that you enjoy? Uh, it's, the design problems are still the same, whether it's a film or a game. You're still trying to use your toolbox of color and shape and light. Uh, and the goal is always, what do we want the audience to feel? The slight differences in the film, you get to design each shot. But in a game, you're doing a more immersive, uh, it's almost like a walkthrough. Of, uh, it's, it's more like a great piece of architecture, but you, you've still got the same tools and you're still working with the same things. It's just a slightly different presentation, but the end result is the same and the tools are the same. Well, I can't uh, thank you enough for both uh, the talk you gave at DDC, which I thought was terrific, and then talking to us today. Um, obviously, uh, the uh, the company does great, great titles, but it's so great to get this kind of span across different media that uh, that you provide. Great. Thank you so much. I totally uh, appreciate you re uh, reaching out, and I'm glad you liked the talk. And, yeah, if we can get more people to start thinking about this kind of stuff, I think that's great. Well, thanks to Rob for joining us and Mike for doing that interview. Are you an FX insider? I wanted to take a second to talk to you about our insider program at FX Guide, where you get exclusive content and expanded articles. People have asked us over the years for a way to contribute to FX Guide and give back for all the work we do here. We've created the FX Insider program, so check it out over on the FX Insider tab on the website fxguide.com. Hey, and you've been listening. This has been the FX Podcast, but we also do two other audio podcasts. Uh, I wanted to mention the VFX Show, which reviews visual effects in current releases as well as classic films, and the RC Podcast covers... Digital cinematography uh, such an important part of the process and, and something that's really difficult to keep up with and uh, keep track of all the changes and things. And Jason Wingrove and Mike Seymour try to keep you up to date on the latest news there. And we also do the high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV, where we just recently did a great piece with Sam Edwards on his work on The Flame on Cosmos, the series. So you can find all of these along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. And don't forget our sister site, fxphd.com, with the best in online training. So that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. 
Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.